What's up? We are back for another episode of Founders Talk. And this week, I'm joined by Mitch Weiner, previously CMO at DigitalOcean and a member of the founding team. Mitch and I talk about his journey as an entrepreneur, early days at DigitalOcean, and everything that went into disrupting the cloud with blazing fast SSDs. Back in March here in 2021, DigitalOcean started trading on the New York Stock Exchange, and this obviously earned Mitch and many others a very large payday. We cover all that, plus the work Mitch is doing now with Welcome Homes and Sponsored. Thank you to Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at LaunchDarkly.com. And we love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at Linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by Linode. Gone are the days when Amazon Web Services was the only cloud provider in town. Linode stands tall to offer cloud computing developers trust, easily deploy cloud compute, storage, and networking in seconds with a full-featured API, CLI, and cloud manager with a user-friendly interface. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, scale, and support you need to launch and scale in the cloud. Get started with $100 in free credit at linode.com slash changelog. Again, linode.com slash changelog. Mitch, I'm glad to have you here. I've been a fan of your work before I actually knew you and uh, more so having known you. And uh, welcome to Founders Talk. Thanks for sharing your story. Or I guess thank you for, you know, coming on here and sharing what you've been up to, your journey, what you've been doing. So welcome. Thanks for having me. You know, I think anybody listening to this podcast, if they don't know who DigitalOcean is, you know, what rock, right? What rock? But, you know, you were a early founder of DigitalOcean. That whole entire journey, you were there for every bit of it. Thank you for linking out to that interview with Jason Calacanis. I really enjoyed going back and kind of digging into what he uncovered there, but the one thing I think was interesting was how you found that position. You're like combing through the one ads or Craigslist. Can you maybe take us back to those early days of DigitalOcean and maybe early days of becoming a marketer or feeling strong with internet marketing and, you know, product market fit, you know, take us back to those days. So I'm 36 years old. And when I was in high school and when I was even in college, Fortunately, there were no classes on internet marketing. Yeah. You know, if you grew up with AOL, getting those CDs in the mail in the mid to late 90s um, with the dial up internet sound, which we all remember, basically it was the wild, wild west. You know, the internet was so new, internet commerce and sites like eBay, basically just learning the ropes of how to write HTML and I taught myself Photoshop and how to design images graphically using Photoshop, building websites on my own uh, from the ground up. So learning some basic kind of front end code and just teaching myself everything. Again, there wasn't courses in, in school to take. I mean, everything from a marketing perspective was fairly high level and generic, you know, basically pulling from traditional marketing principles, which are valuable. It's not like they're not valuable, like the four P's of marketing, you know, positioning, price, place, promotion. Those things will always kind of stick out from my marketing courses. And they are definitely helpful as like building blocks. But at the end of the day, like when I 
was in college or when I was in high school, I was just always a tinkerer, a builder, just building online businesses, building websites, consulting, building websites for other companies or, you know, clients. And basically just doing that from age 13 to when I graduated school at age 20, you know, 21, 22. And after, after college, I dove into a uh, integrated marketing firm, a digital marketing firm where I learned branding, uh, digital marketing, PR, uh, brand. So like the full stack of marketing I was exposed to after I graduated. So I came to the table with a ton of knowledge from age 13 to 22. So basically almost 10 years of experience teaching myself how to code, how to build websites, how to, you know, run ads online, how to sell on eBay, to then learning everything about the world of marketing, working at an ad agency with clients that were Fortune 100 clients. So TD Ameritrade, McKesson, and some big names. And I was teaching them how to leverage social media to drive more business. I was teaching them how to leverage SEO to drive more organic traffic to their website. And I was doing this at age 22 to age 25 and basically just kind of hit a wall where I was like, ah, I have no equity in this agency. Mm -hmm. I joined the company in 2008, right before the market crashed. And we basically laid off 90% of the staff at the agency because marketing budgets are the first budgets to get slashed when, you know, the economy tanks. So I was one of the last people standing at this business, just, you know, kind of getting by making a decent salary, like 90,000 a year. I didn't have any equity. I wasn't learning. I was teaching my, still teaching myself everything. And I just basically hit a wall. And I remember, you know, when this happened, I started to reach out for basically advice and help. And I cold emailed Jason Calacanis, who runs This Week in Startups, you know, another great uh, podcast show. And I asked him like, hey, I'm, you know, I have all this talent. I'm lost. Can you give me some career advice here? Like, where should I go from here? And I came in on an Ask Jason segment. During this time, I also started to apply for many other positions, open positions on, you know, career builder at the time. Indeed, I don't know if Indeed was up but all the different job sites. I think Monster Jobs or something like that. Wasn't there something called Monster Jobs? There was, yeah, Monster.com. and Yeah, Monster. Monster and, and all the job sites that existed at the time. And then I also applied to the Techstars program as a Hackstar, which is basically applying to the program, the Tech Accelerator program as an individual and not a company to get in as a you know graphic designer or a front-end developer a back-end developer, back-end engineer. And so you can enter this program as an associate, what they call associates and hack stars. And then your name's on a list of hack stars that all the founders get when they first enter the program to basically pick and choose like, hey, I am looking for a front-end designer, developer, mm-hmm. you know, a back-end engineer. And so let's see if this person would want to work on our team during the program. And maybe by the end of it, I become a co-founder or I get a point or two. And that was also one of the opportunities that I applied for. So in this whole kind of like application process, I stumbled across a Craigslist ad for a marketing director position working at a hosting company based in Soho. So that intrigued me. The company was called Reality Check Network at the time. And it was ran by Ben and Moise Uretsky, the two brothers that co-founded DigitalOcean. 
And so I thought to myself, hey, Reality Check Network, like no one really knows that name, right? <laughs> They're looking for a marketing director. Oh, this seems to be a sh- relatively straightforward opportunity. You know, clearly a, re- a rebrand is in order here, right? So we changed the company name to ServerStack and they were working at the time on a side project called DigitalOcean, which they introduced to me during the interview process. Like, hey, this is what we're wor- working on. In addition, just to kind of like take a sneak peek under the hood and they also mentioned that they applied to Techstars. So just the dynamic of the conversation and just the vibe. And also Ben called me right after the interview. I left, I remember leaving, walking out of the building and he offered me the job on the spot. Basically, he was like selling wow. me. He's like, hey, we, we're really excited about you. We want to give you the job. You know, and I had a you know, turn around a decision fairly quickly after that. And I was interviewing with ZocDoc for another marketing role. So... Needless to say, obviously, I took the took the job. We got into Techstars, into the Boulder program, in which I joined the team, and I f- flew out, and we slept in a three-bedroom house in Boulder, Colorado, and I slept on the couch the whole time. And it just so happens, like, my name was on the list of the Hackstars to choose from for the Boulder program. So it just, like, you know... All the stars align. All the stars align. That's awesome. Going back to the interview, you know, I kind of jumped ahead here and skipped ahead, but going back to the interview with Jason Calacanis, he had an Ask Jason segment on his podcast. So he said yes and agreed to me coming on the show to ask the question for, you know, career advice. And I basically told him like, listen, I hit a wall. I'm stuck. I need some advice. Um, what, What should I do? And he said, listen, all signs point to the fact that you're done. Like you have no equity. You're not learning. You're not growing. And it's like being the best player at the YMCA versus like the worst player on the Knicks. Like you want to get your butt kicked a little bit and you want to run with like a pack of wolves and ninjas and samurais to like try to, you know, achieve something great. And he said, you should join a tech stars or a YC. And there's obviously other tech accelerator programs where you can get, you know, a point or two in a company and you're going to learn a whole lot more. So uh, as soon as that, you know, interview ended, you know, that was really the starting point for me to start to make a, a drastic change in my career. And it led me on the path to, you know, DigitalOcean. Yeah. And what a ride though. I mean, like it was the Total funding of DigitalOcean, I think, if my notes are correct, around $493 million total in funding. What was the $100 million annual revenue at some point? I can't recall exactly when in the life cycle, but I mean, this is a big deal. Yes, yeah, so just uh, fact check those numbers. I, so it's it's north of $350 uh, million ARR today. And, you know, it's it's raised... I don't know the exact number of equity, but I know a portion of that total number is a credit facility for the CapEx part of the business to lease the servers and the equipment in the data centers. Interesting. Yeah, I remember you talking about that with Jason. I was curious about that. I mean, we'll go into that in detail, I'm sure. But when we get there, let's earmark the capital intensive requirements for this business, leveraging massive lines of credit, you know, all these kind of de- I mean, were you in those details or was this part of the story of the company and you were in those details too? I was in those details because I was the one responsible for putting together the pitch decks for right. the investors slash the banks that when we tried to leverage our assets and our cash and our equity, you know, with these banks to uh, secure large credit lines. So, you know, I was involved in all these financing conversations and 
I knew the details. I knew the the ins and outs and the KPIs of the business pretty intimately uh, as a result. When you first got hired, you said it was called Reality Check. Correct. And then rebranded to Server Stack. Is Server that right? Stack. Yep. Server Correct. Stack. What was the time frame? And you mentioned the DigitalOcean, whatever this was at that time, was a side project. Like, did you go to work for Service Stack and was doing Service Stack stuff and then eventually moved into this side thing? Like, what role did DigitalOcean kind of, like, how fast, I suppose, they transitioned to the side project from you getting the job and, you know, taking a role? I would say I was splitting time, in, you know, between both companies, both entities. Mm-hmm. But it really shifted when I dug into the market research. And this is a really funny story. Basically, I had a conversation with Ben and we were just kind of ideating on ways to find out how next generation businesses and startups are running their applications online. Are they leveraging virtual machines and virtual servers or are they entirely on a managed dedicated machine? So what I did is I basically bought a bunch of pizzas and... I knocked on the doors of every single startup in Soho, the quote unquote Silicon Alley of New York City. And I asked the person at the front desk, hey, can I spend five minutes, 10 minutes with your head of engineering, CTO, VP of engineering, just to ask them a few questions about how their infrastructure is currently set up. And exchange, here's a box of free pizza for your office and your team. So I would say I had probably around a 50-60% success rate getting just a quick conversation on the table with these VPs and the CTOs, um, which was great. It was just, you know, immediate validation that everyone was moving to the cloud. So I spoke to about 30 companies, so a lot of pizza, and every single company either had their entire application, production application, and uh, stage, even staging environment all in the cloud, or they had a hybrid model of you know cloud and dedicated. But no one was purely dedicated. And ServerStack was a managed hosting company predominantly focused on mm. managed dedicated hosting. So I came back with all this insight and information. It wasn't like an enormous data set, right? There was only 30 conversations being had but nonetheless, it was very, it was validating, and and so that that was a point in time where I think you know the decision quickly you know shifted on like where we actually focus our time and effort. Yeah, like how do we prioritize the business? There was obviously employees working at ServerStack, and there was employees working at DigitalOcean. But I think slowly over time we started to shift the focus and shift the priorities of the business to focus on DigitalOcean, and we took a few swings and we placed a few bets along the way and we were slowly growing DigitalOcean, but it really wasn't until we dropped the pricing of the lowest tier server to five bucks a month and doubled the RAM and doubled the hard drive space with SSD drives in the server. And we became pretty much the first cloud to offer SSD virtual machines online. Yeah. I remember those days because I remember I was working with Atel Zverlov. I want to say around that time frame, you know, it was around like 2014. I don't even know what the inception dates are. You can refresh my memory, but I want to say like even 2013, but I could be wrong on, on timeframes, but it was early. It was early 
DigitalOcean days, SSDs, blazing fast. I'm really even like the, even saying that in some of our ad spots, like blazing fast SSDs, you know, $5 machines, et cetera. Like it's almost like the way that the Raspberry Pi is leveling out like Makerspace or Home Labs and stuff like that. Is this enablement when you put, you know, something so powerful at such a, you know, low cost space into the hands of so many, you know, what can happen? I think it's interesting though how you said this this market research led to that was do you think that if you hadn't done all that hustling, all that door knocking, all that pizza delivering and, you know, I suppose customer engagement like that. They weren't customers, but they would be. I bet you all those teams now are have since bought or bought into DigitalOcean, so maybe future customers. But what do you think would have happened if you didn't do that research? Do you think the shift would have done what you've done or maybe it's just been eventually or was that a pivotal moment for the shift. I think we would have done it eventually. I think what all this work, market research or, you know, kind of the path that we took just got us to, you know, answers a lot faster and it reduced the time to market, which is really important. There is a timing consideration here with finding more, you know, product market fit for any company in any business. Like we were one of the first, if not the first, mm-hmm. cloud hosting business offering SSD machines at $5 a month. SSD cloud servers at $5 a month. And, you know, Moisey, our co-founder, and Jeff, our other co-founder, they were really, you know, pushing this idea because they felt like if this wasn't going to work, nothing was going to work. And it was really our last, like, big swing at the plate. And if we didn't knock it out of the park, we could have shut the business down. And Ben came to us, who was, you know, the CEO, and said, listen, if we don't double acquisition because you know, we're cutting our margins in half by offering, you know, double the RAM and SSDs. Like if we don't double acquisition, we could go out of business here. So needless to say, we didn't double acquisition. We 100x acquisition overnight. I was able to get a TechCrunch article written about this new product and, and the new droplet, SSG droplet. And we went viral on Hacker News soon after, and we just saw the numbers just climb yeah. into a whole new you know, stratosphere from 10, 20 signups a day to then 100, 200, 400, you know, new customers a day overnight. And, you know, at that point, we quickly realized, okay, well, now we have to keep up with demand. We have to raise capital. We have to go out to the investor community and raise more capital to meet the demands of our customer to keep up with this insane growth, growth, which was a whole, you know, separate challenge. We're kind of, I guess, at that point where you can talk about the, capital intensiveness, I suppose, of this business, because servers aren't a hundred bucks. They're several thousand engineers to engineer them, manage them, et cetera, are, you know, a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand plus per year as, you know, as an individual for a salary, for example, plus the overhead of having employees. So, I mean, this is a very capital intensive, and I'm probably skipping a bunch of other, you know, hard costs in there. So please fill us in, but this is a capital intensive business, massive amounts of you know, credit lines to be done. How do you manage that? How do you kind of like, you know, one product market fit it like you had done hundred X your acquisition. And then you've got to go out and get more dollars to increase your credit lines or to do all these things that make this business work. It needs a lot of money. You need to have your operating budget or your operating bank accounts got to have, you know, millions of dollars in it. I'm sure at any given moment, just to manage monthly spend. Yeah, I think to quote Reed Hoffman, 
And, you know, the founder of LinkedIn, who runs a podcast called Masters of Scale, he said, like, if your company and your startup doesn't feel like you're falling off a cliff and you're trying to build a plane at the same time with rocket packs attached to your back, like you're doing it wrong. Mm. And that was the feeling we felt when we could not keep up with demand. To put that into perspective and what this feels like. So when I was on This Week in Startups, I talked about unit economics of what it costs to keep up with the demand by, you know, describing what each rack of servers costs. So each rack of servers, which is roughly between 30 and 40 servers, cost $250,000. And this was back in the day at the time when I interviewed with Jason. So this was a few years ago, several years ago now. So $250,000 for a rack of servers. We had to stand up a rack. We stood up a rack once a week during that time. When I left DigitalOcean, we were doing a rack a day growth. So 250K coming out of your bank account every day to keep up with demand, right? Wow. So four days is a million dollars. (laughs) That's true. That's just the hardware cost. Yeah. You know, that's not leasing the the space. It didn't pay for the employees and the headcount to physically insert and rack those servers and those machines. Because this is like, not not only do we have to keep up with demand of existing customers, we had to keep up demand of like, like prepping for future customers, right? You're not racking for the customers of, of now, you're racking for the customers of the future, right? Of the right. upcoming months and weeks. So Carl Alomar, who ran our infrastructure and operations at the business and partnered with Lev Yuretsky, one of Ben and Moise's brothers, they basically mapped all this out in a massive spreadsheet to keep up with, you know, all the different unit economics and dynamics of each data center, because not only are you doing this in one data center, you're doing this across multiple data centers in the country. Plus you're doing this with, you know, international data centers across the globe. So it was, you know, just a massive challenge. And we had to raise capital to keep up with the growth and demand. So the reason why we went down the venture path is because we needed cash on the balance sheet to leverage these large credit lines and large credit facilities to pay for the server leases. Yeah. I think it gives a reason for complete respect for building that kind of business. You know, Amazon, and you could talk to your your competition over the years, or having to compete with Amazon in terms of spend, in terms of, as you mentioned, this one last swing, because we got to double our acquisition. And in this case, you said you 100 exit. But just this idea that, it's not easy to build that kind of business logistically, technically, financially, in all ways, you know, going back to Reed Hoffman, what he had said, like, you're falling off the cliff with jetpacks on trying to build a plane. Like, that's very difficult. But it gives a new respect, you know, as an end user, just to think, oh, man, you know, like, this server's not acting right. Or, you know, the SLA, for example, the uptime necessary, or just, oh, I want it for less. Like, five bucks is probably as inexpensive as you can make you know, that kind of server today, like they called it a droplet, for example, Mm -hmm. but you know, just a a sheer amount of respect required to, to what you've done, you all have done with DigitalOcean and that's just awesome. But uh, I love DigitalOcean. I think it's a a super awesome company. And in many ways you changed what the cloud is. You know, you brought competition to a doorstep that did not have competition. You can speak to that if you want to, but I remember in Jason's interview, you had said how investors were even scared to invest because they didn't want to compete with Amazon. No. And we heard a lot of no's because of that. 
And we really stuck to our guns and, and our beliefs of just, you know, trying to keep the cloud simple. And we just felt that, you know, even just talking to developers, software engineers about their experience on AWS Mm -hmm. and what the support was like for an individual developer, you know, with a small account, there was no support. There was no support from AWS, you know, or the support was poor. And, you know, the reality was they just invested their time and effort catering to the enterprise market as, you know, makes sense because that's where the majority of their revenue comes from. But as a result, they've, you know, neglected the developer community. And from a product suite perspective, DigitalOcean would have a very hard time keeping up and competing with AWS to launch every single product underneath the sun that AWS has. From a usability perspective, you know, it becomes so complex and you have all these different buttons to push and features to leverage launching your cloud when a lot of it's just completely unnecessary. So as a individual developer building a startup or small business of their own, they just need to get their apps up and running quickly as possible at an affordable price point. And they need to know that if something happens, there's going to be a support person on the other end that's going to answer my questions and help me with my challenges. And I need to know that I can continue to grow my business on this cloud. So if you check those boxes for people, DigitalOcean becomes a no-brainer. Why go to AWS with all this complexity and you know confusing pricing? There's businesses built to calculate your AWS bill and to optimize your AWS bill. <laughs> Calculators for it. I mean, can you believe that? Like, yeah. there's a market for it. It's even impossible now, even to today. Like, not even, like, since DigitalOcean's been in place and competed and all that stuff and leveled that idea, but even today, it's almost, I would say, almost impossible to get an accurate count of what your cost calculator might be for your infra spend. There's a, a terminology, cost intelligence, cloud cost intelligence. Yeah. And whole entire... You know, cottage industries of businesses just helping you manage your AWS spend. And then, you, I mean, you're hiring people internally to manage your AWS spend when you get large enough at the enterprise level. I mean, it's just, you know, you ask yourself, like, is this necessary? Mm-hmm. Or can we keep pricing predictable? Can we make it straightforward? DigitalOcean always had flat pricing across all data center regions, never changed the pricing to keep it straightforward and predictable and affordable. Yeah. Can we make it? attractive and cost efficient and cost effective for you. So that was a winning formula for us. And by focusing on catering to the underserved market, the developer population, developer community, that was the winning formula that, you know, continues to to work for DigitalOcean and will continue to work for the years ahead. I mean, I truly believe like we're in the early innings of internet revolution, if you even want to call it that at this point. But you know, the developer population is still tiny in comparison to the overall global population. There's 30 million developers at best in the world. And comparing to how many billions of people there are on the planet, it's tiny. So coding is becoming a second language. A lot of people are learning how to code. As a result, the applications that these developers build need to live somewhere.
This episode is brought to you by Snowplow Analytics. Snowplow is the behavioral data management platform for data teams. Maximize the value of your behavioral data using Snowplow Insights, a managed data platform that's built on leading open source tech leveraged by tens of thousands of users. Capture and process high quality behavioral data from all your platforms and your products and deliver that data to your cloud destination of choice. When marketing needs to make data informed decisions, when product needs next level understanding, and when analytics needs rich and accurate data, Data, Snowplow is a solution for data teams who want to manage the collection, processing, and warehousing of data across all their platforms and products. Get started and experience Snowplow data for yourself at snowplowanalytics.com. Again, snowplowanalytics.com. more thing I want to ask you about is uh, the accessibility, not just in price, but in, I would say, awareness. So I learned how to build my first Ubuntu-based Linux server because of a DigitalOcean guide. I felt empowered to be able to do so. I followed this guide. I had a Linux server running, and eventually, this isn't the case anymore, but eventually I launched what was then potentially the changelaw.com, but maybe changelaw.com on a WordPress instance in an Ubuntu server, a droplet that I had built myself. So just to be kind of candid here, I'm not a sysadmin, okay? I'm capable, but I was always more on the business-facing, front-end-facing, brand-facing, user experience-facing, growth development spaces, the look of things, less on the technical back-end sysadmin side. In many ways, these guides were capturing too, because if you Googled, you know, Ubuntu, you know, 1804 or, you know, whatever it might be, you would land or potentially land on a DigitalOcean guide that would tell you how to build a DigitalOcean droplet and launch it. And like you made not just the technology accessible, but the understanding of how to, you know, wield this technology accessible to people who could easily learn, but just never had access to it. What was that in your marketing guidebook? How do the guides and the docs play into that for you? Well, the guides and the tutorials were extremely important for us in terms of, first and foremost, helping the developer community. And, you know, as a result, we were able to generate three to five million unique visitors a month to the website, which is, you know, again, when you go back to that developer population number that I threw out 30 million, three to five million a month, you know, you're hitting a lot of people. You're quickly saturating the market. You mentioned Attel's name earlier when you were speaking with her. She ran the community tutorials, which in many ways was our best channel. Now, I believe the best form of marketing is to give first and to not try to hard sell people on buying your service or buying your product. It requires you know, a certain level of thoughtfulness and, you know, a kind of give first approach. And that is actually the best form of content marketing or, you know, if you want to call it content marketing, um, but just helping people. So the tutorials that were written to your point earlier of like, hey, I'm not a sysadmin. I was able to kind of pick this up pretty easily. So Attel had this saying, we had a standard for writing tutorials. The goal and the objective was to you know, write it as simple as possible so that a drunk four-year-old could understand it. Okay. 
Super easy, basically. The visual you you know you get from that phrase is isn't the best visual, obviously, and it's not you know uh, apologies to the parents out there for for that, but it kind of just pounded in the back of our heads and, and the team's heads, like, hey, we got to keep these tutorials very simple, easily digestible. In fact, like Atel, when she started, learned how to navigate, you know, the terminal and the Linux systems, you know, from a very basic level. And she taught herself. And if she couldn't understand it in terms of, you know, writing the tutorial, then who else can understand it, right? So that was always the goal and objective and it worked. And we were able to scale it. We invested heavily in building the team out to scale that content. So we had an internal team of writers. We had an editorial team of content um, producers that vetted external writers from the community because we paid external writers to write for us, community contributors. And we also scaled that channel out and that became 40% of our overall content that lived on the website. So we had a team to support the effort and we scaled it over time. So that was a key channel for us and continues to be a key channel. But, you know, going back to the, to my point, like you definitely want to, you know, as a marketer, as a CMO, you want to give first, right? And, and all, when, when you create a new initiatives, new programs, the best form of creating brand awareness is to give back. Mm, I like that. Give first is definitely something I need to be better about. We don't give first. I, I think we do give first, I suppose. We, we put all these podcasts out there, but you know, if our primary way we generate revenue, for example, is through sponsorships or partnerships with, for example, DigitalOcean over the years, you know, we don't give first. And I suppose we kind of do give first. We put out these podcasts, but we don't give first in the, hey, here's a sponsorship for free kind of thing, give first. But, uh, you know, Mitch, one thing I think is interesting about your story is that, uh, is that you're not done. You know, we're talking a lot about DigitalOcean because that's a triumph in your career. Like this is uh, a major thing for you. DigitalOcean obviously has since IPO'd, is doing very well. You're exited from the company, but I wanted to share a lot of that uh, that journey because one, it's super cool. And two, it sort of sets you up for where you're trying to go now, which now you're in Welcome, Welcome Homes, Building Homes, which you can tell me more about, and Sponsor, which is helping folks like me and other tech podcasters out there get awesome branded partnerships, get awesome sponsorships in place. But, you know, that's where we should go next. When did you begin to think about, I suppose, these next ventures you're involved in, you know, with DigitalOcean? Like, kind of take us from DigitalOcean days to now. Yeah, so I think <laughs> when when you achieve your um, kind of goals in life, you know, building a billion-dollar business, as an example— building a company that goes public, you know, from the ground up and and you start checking those boxes and then, and then you quickly realize there's no more boxes to check. It, it becomes very depressing. And you take a step back and you're like, you have to kind of think back to your roots and, and your core of what, what makes you, you. And for me, you know, again, going back to my story from the beginning at age 13, it's like, I've always loved building. I just always loved taking an idea, turning it into a reality, taking a concept and bringing it to life. And for me, I can never see myself stop doing that. I just want to continue on that path. And that's what gets me up in the morning. 
you know, I also have like a beautiful wife and two kids. They get me up in the morning too at 6.30 a.m., 6 a.m. <laughs> That's a separate story. From a career perspective, like I just love building exciting brands, exciting companies from the ground up that are game-changing companies. And I'll talk a little bit about Welcome Homes and, and Sponsored. You know, Welcome Homes we're placing a massive bet. We believe that people in the future are going to buy homes online, sight unseen. And, you know, the younger generation, especially, they don't like calling people on the phone. They don't like meeting people in person. They're, you know, much more in tune with texting and uh, social media and, you know, buying things online. Even consumers today, right, are getting more comfortable with higher end purchases online. And that is the trend, right? That is happening today. And so looking at the real estate industry and, and looking at how homes are being purchased and, and how new homes are being built, you know, it's a very complex process. You're dealing with a lot of different parties and building a new home is overwhelming for people and many shy away from it. In fact, like, you know, in the market that we're in in Westchester, all of homes sold, there's only 2% that are new homes sold in Westchester on a yearly basis. So 98% of the homes sold in Westchester are existing homes. You know, it's a very small market that I think is going to grow over time as technology and automation and as innovation comes into play to make this entire process easier and more straightforward for buyers where it's price competitive. You're going to be able to customize your home like you customize a car online where you get to see a price update instantaneously with the different finishes or materials that you pick in your kitchen or for your flooring, et cetera. And we know that there's buyers that want this type of product out there. And, you know, once we get the ball rolling and once we start to build, you know, 10, 100, 1,000 homes, this is going to quickly snowball over time. Mm -hmm. And then the plan is to expand nationally as a next step. So the company's raised some seed capital. We're hiring a lot of people. If you're interested in this opportunity, go to our careers page and apply. We'd love to speak to you. This industry is ripe for disruption, right? The way mortgages are processed, the way people deal with GCs, with interior designers, with, you know, dealing with home insurance, like the whole industry is so fragmented and there just has to be a better way. So looking at what we did with DigitalOcean at scale Mm -hmm. and simplifying a very complex industry, you know, cloud infrastructure, we're trying to apply some of the same principles here to the residential real estate industry. I got to say buying a home, I've built a house recently. I would say recently because it was 2017. It's the house I'm actually talking to you in now. This is my home studio, as you probably know or guessed already. But listeners, you can't see me. But we built this home in 2017. And I want to say that building this home was the most stressful thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I think I still have like shockwaves of PTSD from it. Yeah. Like it was a very difficult I was actually just texting with somebody, texting, gosh, like I'm, I'm told. I was um, tweeting with somebody on Twitter, you know, back and forth about that process. And they were saying, you know, how they moved X many years ago. And I'm like, preach. Um, I'm still feeling the effects of even moving, not so much just even buying and building, but it's a very difficult process. And so you'd mentioned in terms of Westchester, new homes versus existing homes. So are you focused on building new homes or revamping existing homes? What's the market for you? It's only new homes right now. And not to say that we're not going to look to renovate 
or remodel or tear down existing homes in the future. We're not throwing that off the table, but you know, for the foreseeable future, it's new homes and we're only looking at vacant lots. So vacant parcels of, of land that exist on the MLS that are available to purchase. And so, you know, just kind of sharing some of the model with the audience here. So basically you come to us, we have an inventory list of lots that we've vetted with our team. We've invested real dollars into making sure like there's a high degree of confidence that we can build a welcome home on this lot. And we give you an all-in price, which includes what it costs to purchase the land and then prep the land to make sure that we can build a driveway, flatten it, make sure all the piping and the water and the sewage is all attached. So we give you a prep cost price. In addition, we give you the cost to build and customize the home. So those three different prices, you know, cost to purchase land, cost to prep the land, and the cost to build the home based upon the, the customization options you choose through our online studio, we give you a guaranteed all-in price that we don't exceed. So anything above that price, we pay for yeah. it. So mm. we're, we're calling it, we're, we haven't yet released how we're, you know, the, the, the branded term for this or the branded program for this, but we're calling it the welcome promise. And it just gives people peace of mind. Like you don't have to worry about going over budget. And this is less, there's the terminology called track homes, which essentially is, this is a predefined architectural diagram. Maybe you can attach a extra room or whatever. There's a degree of customizability to it, which is the home I bought. I bought a, I would consider a track home, but with customization, I know people who actually have my same plan, neighbors of ours, and their house doesn't look the same. It, exactly. There's, there's some differences and some nuanced differences, but being able to, to kind of deliver that, are you in the custom? Would you consider it custom or kind of track? Which would you kind of? We're definitely custom. So we don't do prefab or modular. We do only limit you to the shell uh, and the template of the home. Now, if you want to add like, and you know, if you want to upgrade and add certain elements of the home, like a basement, or if you want to add a wall, you know, those things could be negotiated and discussed in the process. Um, or if you want to upgrade certain things other than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of like how the home is like externally built from like a shell perspective, like that has to remain because what that enables us to do is obviously we could scale the business a lot faster if we have a templated model that feeds into our online studio that people can use to customize the interior. We don't have to change anything there and we can value optimize the home. So we can look to optimize different materials and different ways to build each area of the home to give you the best all in price because we're a value-driven business. We want to compete with other homes on the market in terms of price so that buying a welcome home becomes a no-brainer for people. Yeah. And you're doing this with DigitalOcean buddies, basically, right? Ben and Moisey Uretsky, as you mentioned before, they're a part of this. I know that even in their history, too, they're part of Techstars, and you've got a lot of similar histories. And, you know, a recent uh, conversation I had with Spencer Kimball CEO of Cockroach DB, Cockroach Labs, one of the advices he had given essentially to, you know, old Spencer or would be future entrepreneurs, 
do it with co-founders you've been in the trenches with. That's great advice. And you've been in the trenches, obviously, with Ben and Moisey and others as well. But like you're willing to get in, in this probably because of the similar same scars and, you know, bloody knuckles you've shared over the years in terms of fighting the same fight. Do you agree with that advice? I definitely agree with that advice. I mean, when I met the the team, um, so Ben, Moisey, and Alec, uh, Alec Hartman, who's the CEO of Welcome, was also one of the DigitalOcean co-founders. And I met these guys when I was 26, now 36. So, you know, 10 years fast forward. You quickly learn your strengths and weaknesses. You, mm-hmm. you become more self-aware as you get older. Like, I'm good with certain things when it comes to marketing and I'm bad with certain things when it comes to marketing. I'm, I'm just like basically average, right? And I'm aware of those strengths and weaknesses. You quickly understand like your superpowers and your gaps, right? But it becomes even more powerful when your co-founders understand your gaps and your superpowers because you can complement each other more efficiently you're able to then quickly get to a decision point or make it a hiring decision to fill a gap in the business, right? And you can have more honest and transparent conversations because there's more trust. Yeah, We've worked together for so long, there's nothing to hide at this point. No one's trying to pretend to be something that we're not, right? Right. And I think once you can get on, on the same page with everyone in terms of like, hey, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm not good at. This is what I'm really passionate about. And like, what I love doing, I want to dig in deep here. Like once you start to have those honest conversations, you're able to make so much more progress and you're, you're able to work so much faster together on things. And so we're at a, an enormous advantage here because we've worked together for so long and we know each other's you know, strengths and weaknesses inside and out at this point. We're honest with each other. We say like, listen, we just suck in this area. We can, there's nothing we can do about it. We just got to hire. We got to fill this, this position or fill the, you know, build this team or, and we just get it done. We just figure it out. And so it enables us to have more honest conversations, to have more fun too when we're building these companies because like work's hard and you want to build a company with people that you want to work with ultimately at the end of the day. Like we, that's what we found out building DigitalOcean is like when you create a great culture, like you want to hire people that you want to work with, that you enjoy working with, that you learn from too. Like these people that you bring into the business, you're learning new things from these people. And like, that's a great interview tip when meeting new candidates is asking yourself the question, like, did I learn something new in this interview? This episode is brought to you by our friends at GitLab. GitLab is inviting you to attend GitLab Commit 2021, their upcoming user community event, August 3rd and 4th. It's free, it's virtual, and everyone can attend. Learn more about modern DevOps and how it transforms companies of all sizes and pushes teams to drive innovation to market. During this two-day conference, attendees across all time zones will learn how they can instill modern DevOps practices at their organizations through in-depth trainings and workshops, hear firsthand stories from some of the most well-known companies, and gain insight into cutting-edge CICD and security technologies that bring companies to the next level. Get ready to innovate together during this free event designed to help you to commit to better DevOps. 
register and learn more at GitLab Commit Virtual 2021.com. Once again, that's GitLab Commit Virtual 2021.com or check for links in the show notes. And by SendInBlue. SendInBlue is a fantastic platform for growing businesses who want their digital marketing and sales tools to help them thrive. Do it all. Email marketing, marketing automation, CRM, transactional emails, smart segmentation, live chat for your site, landing pages, sign up forms on Facebook ads. Take your digital marketing to the next level. Head to sendinblue.com slash founders talk and use the code founders talk to get one free month and 100,000 emails. Again, sendinblue.com slash founders talk. Can we go back to those boxes you mentioned that you checked off and the exit from DigitalOcean and maybe like uh, how you were, you'd mentioned depression or it was depressing, not that you were, de- you were depressed, but you said the word depressing. Uh, can we go back to those boxes and, you know, when you exited from DigitalOcean, I don't need to know how much money you made, but were you substantially well off that you could just take time off and self-fund next things? Like, like how did you exit from that situation? Did you exit off really well and... And you'd mentioned the boxes, checking them all off at such a young age, kind of that that kind of being depressing. Can you kind of go back to that and and explain more detail in there? Yeah. So I um, financially, I checked that box as well. So I'm I'm fortunate enough to say, like, I I don't have to work again if I choose not to. I could definitely take, you know, an extended period of time off and, you know, travel with my family once COVID clears. I think there's a lot of unhappy people you know, make it financially and just are not doing anything with their lives. So once I got to a certain point from a financial perspective, like in my life, I start to think about like, okay, what's next? What can I do? Or what, you know, let's say Welcome Homes becomes a, you know, the next billion dollar startup. I'm accumulating all this wealth. Like what am I going to be doing with all this wealth and with this financial capability? So sponsored came to mind the, this podcast marketplace to give back to low-income families that can't afford access to the internet and can't afford computers. And going back to my story, when I was 13, my dad had a, a desktop and IBM and, you know, I always had access to computers or and or the internet. And that's how I taught myself and kind of built my career. Why shouldn't anyone else have that same opportunity is the question. And everyone should have that same opportunity. So sponsored was a, you know, self-funded, you know, side slash passion project of mine to give back to these uh, low-income families so that, you know, everyone can have the same opportunity and we can level the playing field. So in this next chapter, this next phase of my life, I'm starting to think of ways to not only build amazing companies, but what are some ways to give back to the community and to help others and to inspire others. And so I spent a lot of my time too with startup founders and uh, I spent a lot of time mentoring through the Techstars program as well. So I jump on founders talks with the other DigitalOcean founders for a, a Techstars fireside chat opportunity I'm also joining uh, David Cohen. We're hosting a, a fireside chat 
from my university, Northeastern University. They're opening up a, a tech accelerator in the New England area in partnership with Techstars. So I'm, I'm doing a chat with them. So I'm also contributing my time to help mentor and educate, you know, other aspiring entrepreneurs out there. So just, you know, figuring out ways to give back and to help others, I think is, is probably one of the most fulfilling feelings. But I also am a capitalist. Um, I also, you know, want to continue to build amazing businesses and, you know, generate profits. And I definitely enjoy building exciting brands and I'm going to continue to do that as well. It's ultimately just being self-aware and knowing that life is so short. We only have so many years on this planet. We got to be swinging the bat, in my opinion. We can't get too complacent and just like, you know, just kind of check the box every day and wake up and just do the same stuff every day. Like you got to try to get better, try to make the world a better place, make yourself better every single day. Just try to get 1% better every single day, you know, and, and, and try to accomplish things and finish things that you start too. I think that's another important takeaway too, for people out there that are looking or asking themselves, like, why am I not further along than I want to be? Those are some of the things that I've been doing. Again, I still have knock on wood, a lot more years to go in my life. So you're young. Yeah, I'm young. There's going to be new realities that, you know, I face as, as I get older, but the kind of, this is where I'm at mentally in my headspace today. When we talked a few months back in just a separate side conversation, you'd mentioned that you wanted to create a business with purpose and to go back to what you're doing with sponsored part of the platform fee or whatever the fee is essentially to enable the transaction between the marketer and the podcaster, that percentage and 5% of that goes to a nonprofit. What's your connection to that nonprofit? Can you kind of explain that nuance there a bit more? So a third of the uh, placement fee goes to the nonprofit. Okay. We basically donate a third. Typically the podcast host, like we land somewhere around, you know, 10 to 15%. We're still very early with the startup. So we're still trying to figure right. out the right pricing model and balance there, but call it like a 50, 50 split or even a third goes to the uh, nonprofit. So sorry, I missed, I missed the question. Was it, what was the original question? The details of the nonprofit, like what's your connection to the nonprofit? Why specifically that mission kind of, you know, the amount of the placement fee, I know it's probably flexible and you're still sort of, sort of finding fit, but uh, website says 15%, 5% going to this nonprofit. That's good feedback. I just got to change some of that copy then to make it clear on the placement fee. But the nonprofit, Human IT, I met with uh, the founder, Jermaine. He and I uh, met with his team to talk about you know a partnership. And I told him about this new startup that I'm self-funding to make it easier for brands and for podcasts to connect and to automate a lot of the you know tedious work to manage and to track and optimize you know your podcast sponsorship efforts which at DigitalOcean was a very viable channel for us in terms of generating real business we actually found a lot of success in sponsoring developer-focused podcast. And uh, it was a great way to just build awareness and also help a lot of podcasts out with some real ad revenue. I know early days for us, for DigitalOcean, the relationship, I mean, it didn't make or break our business, but it was definitely, you know, we saw DigitalOcean as a strong partner. And yeah, we definitely enjoyed the revenue we got from from that engagement for sure. Um, I mean, that's, that's for sure. 
what I would call us an indie media company. We've been in business since 2009. We've never taken venture capital, have no plans to. I can't foresee that day where it might come, but uh, we've always been sort of funded by our customers and our customers generally were through branded partnerships or sponsorships. We've never had uh, our listeners pay. However, we do have a thing called ChangeLaw++. It's an ad-free version of our show, and that's at your discretion as a listener if you want to you know, do that to directly support us. That sort of evens the tide, so to speak, between our reliance upon sponsors and how that can make or break. I know in, in 2020, we saw a dip you know, in terms of listenership and in terms of sponsorship. It wasn't enough, thankfully, because we've been smart in business and having no debt and being smart around certain things that it didn't break us, but it was certainly a hit and it was a little scary for a little bit there, but we weathered that storm, you know, no problem. And, you know, just to key in quickly there, DigitalOcean was a big player for us, I would say over the years. And ChangeLog was a great audience for us. Yeah. It kind of hit the mark for us and the developer community that tuned into ChangeLog was our audience. Yeah. It was a great partnership. And I, and I remember uh, engaging with uh, ChangeLog and keeping that engagement for, for a long time when I was uh, CMO there. So it was a great podcast for us and it performed very well. So thank you for all those, uh, all those episode <laughs> sponsorships and keeping us on the show. So that was great. I remember saying blazing fast SSDs <laughs> about a thousand and one times for sure. So, I mean, Kudos to you or whomever on that copy. Very well done. Thank you. But Blazing Fast SSDs was like the brand early on and a sustained brand for DigitalOcean because you brought SSDs to market, kind of going back to our earlier part of the conversation. But yeah, I remember saying Blazing Fast SSDs, $5 droplets. <laughs> you should have made a song out of that. We should have. Yeah. We didn't have that uh, relationship quite so ingrained <laughs> with Breakmaster then. But yeah, we, we could have done and we should have done that for sure. But uh, sponsored, though, I mean, I think, you know, what is it that drew you to this space? I know you kind of lean on the angle of the nonprofit and the 30% given from the placement fee. But, like, why solve the problem of helping marketers engage with, in your words, highly engaged technical audiences? Why that? I mean, that's super niche. Yes. You know, super niche. Great that it's self-funded, but it's super niche in compared to, say, Welcome Homes, which is, I guess, kind of niche, but more like everybody needs at some point you'll buy a home, a digital ocean, at some point you will run or, you know, use an app or service on a cloud server, mm -hmm. but not everybody needs to buy a podcast ad. Why that for you? Well, I mean, I did some homework and research too. Like I didn't entirely launch the business blindly. Uh, I saw that the podcast uh, market was growing from 5 million in, in ad spend to a billion in ad spend within a year. So within 12 months, you know, the industry's doubling. At that pace, obviously, there's going to be, you know, billions of dollars being invested into the podcast space. So just looking ahead and, and thinking like, podcast, obviously podcast worked for DigitalOcean. Also my uh, next startup that I joined Clubhouse, the project management app, not the social media app. Uh, we also invested in podcast as well. And that, and that did, did generate, you know, good returns for us there. It was a viable channel for all these companies. And I just, it just was a pain to manage and to deal with the back and forth with each podcast owner or add a partner to place these sponsorships and to track them. Because, you know, 
to do it right, you need a you know dedicated landing page. You need to track. You know, to, you need to offer up some type of incentive. I'm sure we had a change log incentive at DigitalOcean to get some credit. Do.co slash change log. I think it might still exist. When we, we sent everybody to that landing page, do.co slash change log. They're not paying us for that ad, by the way. That's just facts. That's history. Exactly. So you need the landing page. You need an incentive yeah. to do this right. And so there's also an educational process to running a podcast sponsorship the right way. And then you could run it the wrong way by not offering an incentive, by you know sending them to your homepage, by you know, being very generic with the copy and not exciting, not saying the word blazing, you know, so there's, there is a, you know, education piece that I think is important as part of this onboarding. And then the goal with sponsored is to make it entirely self-serve in the future. So it's a marketplace. We have to build both sides of the marketplace. So you need advertisers who are willing to, and, and brands that are willing to spend dollars on the sponsorship and you need them to have accounts and profiles set up on the site and then their payment method integrated. And then you need podcast owners and hosts who have their own account to accept the payments and to also accept these sponsorship placement requests, right? So over time, if you build up both sides of the marketplace, this should be a self-sustained ecosystem that basically grows organically, uh, over time. And it becomes semi-programmatic in a way, but you still are able to secure authentic host reads from podcasts. It's crucial. It's crucial. Like trust is important, right? Especially when you have an engaged audience. If someone is going to make a purchasing decision, like, you know, word of mouth and referrals is always the best channel, right? They're going to trust their friend or their family member, or even just a podcast host, like a, a person that they trust to make recommendations. And so if the podcast host is putting their reputation in line with this product or service, then it should be worthwhile to try, right? And especially yeah. if there's an incentive tied to it. And if it's a product or service that I was looking for in the first place, then it becomes a no-brainer. Versus like uploading an ad, the new Spotify podcast channel where it's like pre-recorded and there's like no tie-in to the show there's no connection people are just going to skip that right it's like it's going to be like seeing a billboard on the side of the road and just driving past it yeah so just from my experience of like how to run a podcast sponsorship the proper way knowing it's a great channel knowing that the industry is going to continue to increase in size over time this product and this platform makes sense right it's still fairly early it is niche to your point but over time, this industry will continue to expand and there just needs to be a, you know, an easy, straightforward way to do this properly and at scale. Yeah. If I'm a CMO at a tech company targeting, let's say, developers even or software engineers with my product and I want to invest in podcasts, like I have to hire someone, I have to pay them $55,000, $60,000 a year, let's say, to own this channel because... You have to track all this in a spreadsheet and you probably do this, right? Like you have a, maybe a spreadsheet potentially of all, you know, your sponsorships and you have the price and you have the time and the dates, you know, when it's going live and the script and it just becomes a mess and it just becomes really hard to scale and optimize over time. Plus you need, you know, again, landing pages for each sponsorship. So it needs to be organized better. It needs to be more systematic. It needs to be automated and it, and it needs to become more self-serve so that you can scale it. Yeah. There's a lot that resonates with me and there's a lot that doesn't. I think we've been doing it a while. 
that we've done a lot of that, but I can't agree that it it would be very difficult to scale it to, you know, we have six active shows, for example. If we had 60 active shows, you know, if I'm a CMO, I might actually target in the dev space, you know, six, 10, you know, budget, you know, restrictive at least because, you know, you might not be able to afford 10 shows consistently over time, which is generally how podcast sponsorship works is it's best when you can sort of touch that audience and on a consistent basis and, and earn that trust. And as you said, educate them through the process, you know, all these different things that, that sort of come into play with certain brands. That is a real challenge I think we personally face. And that I'm sure that others that are like us face as well. What's the state of the business? You know, where would you say it's at currently in terms of like fit on the, you know, CMO marketer side fit on the podcaster side. What's the current state of the company? So current state of the company is that in terms of who we're building it for and how we're positioning the product and, and how we're cha- iterating, you know, there's still a lot of things up in the air and a lot of question marks. Um, it's very, very early. One thing I am committed to and I do know is that we're going to be hiring a full-time CEO to run it. Someone that has a marketing background and can manage a PL. So that will help accelerate a lot of the you know product development work and a lot of the account management work. So we do have a small account management team that works directly with you know both the podcasters and the advertisers. And so there is a human touch element to it at the moment. And this is really just to get people up to speed on how it works, how the platform works, and also um how to properly set up a, a sponsorship, you know, going back to yeah. the, the points that I made earlier. So to answer your question, Adam, like we're still trying to figure a lot of, <laughs> a lot of this stuff out. And obviously a lot of my time and hundred percent of my time is really dedicated on welcome homes. So one thing I learned in my career, Adam, is that if you want to do something right and you want to build something like you have to invest in it and, Man. You have to invest in it in the right way. And and to do that, it usually takes someone to own it fully from end to end. And so bringing on a CEO, bringing on someone that's going to, you know, own sponsor to take it to the next level is, is going to be an exciting challenge for me in my career. And as a, as a next step where I get to, you know, help guide and mentor and from a different position than before where I was more of a hands-on operator. I'll be more of a seen as an advisor investor per se to help grow this business. And, you know, again, to help give back to the community with access to technology. And so for me, it's, you know, still very early. We're just getting some sponsorships off the ground with some startups and some brands through my, my personal network. And I believe we had one sponsorship already through ChangeLog. For GS Party. Yep. And so just starting to get the ball moving, learn, iterate, and improve the product over time and the platform so that it becomes a, a more enjoyable experience for you know both the podcasters and the advertisers. And if it's a niche market, do I want a billion dollar exit from this company? No. This company could just be profitable and be bootstrapped and I would be perfectly happy. I would love that. Yeah. I would, that would be amazing. Like I would love that. So for me, like the goal for this company, first and foremost, is like just build a profitable company that is offering a great product and delivering a great service. And like the rest will take care of itself. I'm not worried about it in terms of trying to achieve this like, you know, billion dollar market cap, you know, or valuation. 
box to check. Like it, it has nothing to do with that at this point in my, in my life. Like clearly we've done that already with DigitalOcean, with Sponsored. Yeah. It's, it's about giving back and it's about building a great company. And obviously bootstrapping as much as I can, self-funding as much as I can to take it to the next level is the uh, near-term objective. Cool. And that's uh, sponsored.us. I think that's a cool domain name, by the way, too. Sponsored.us. I imagine that you live in the U.S. to get that domain. Is that a U.S. thing? Uh, what is that? I don't know. I don't. What is that I, TLD? It's a domain extension uh, from GoDaddy, and I think Zoom has a .us extension. So that's where I got the idea from. Yeah, that's right. .us as well. That's true. Interesting. It's like, well, if Zoom could have a .us, why not sponsor? That's right. They're doing pretty well. Yeah. Love Zoom. We're on Zoom right now. Exactly. Mitch, thanks for sharing your story with us. I mean, I'm sure we could have gone in a thousand and one different directions. We didn't even cover everything I really wanted to cover with you. So maybe we can have you back sometime soon, but count me in. Yeah. I appreciate the work you've done at uh, DigitalOcean. I wanted to share a lot of that story arc. I know we camped out there quite a bit and glossed over probably what you really intend to do with Welcome, even if it's uh, niche and early days. But, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot to happen in the home space a lot of areas where we are synergistic in terms of our ideas, similar and same, because uh, I think there's a better way, let's just say, to to build a home. There's definitely a better way. There's definitely a better way. We're going to solve it, so we're excited. Anything closing, anything I didn't ask you that you want to make sure we talk about before you tail off? Being an entrepreneur is hard. Uh, entrepreneur is very hard, and it takes a lot of perseverance. And just my advice to all the entrepreneurs out there is just don't give up keep pushing through. That's right. That's good advice. Thank you, Mitch. Thanks for having me, Adam. This was great. Enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully I was able to add some value back to the Founders Talk community and you know, someone out there took away something that could help guide their career or guide their marketing decisions or strategy and just hopefully help someone. That was the goal. Yeah, I know you did. I know you did, Mitch. Thank you. Thank you. What's up, Adam here. Thank you so much for tuning in to Founders Talk. If you enjoyed this show, do me a favor. Share it on Twitter, share it on Insta, share it with a friend. Tell someone you love this show if you got value from it. As you know, we're backed by some awesome partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. Check them out. We get tremendous value from their services, and you might as well. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats. Breakmaster is our beats master in residence. Thanks again for tuning in. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next time.